Welcome to Life Science Marketing Radio, the podcast where marketing leaders inside and outside the sciences share their creative ideas and practical approaches to increasing your marketing ROI. Here's your host, Chris Connor. Sherry Walker is the president and CEO of Rhinostics, where they're revolutionizing sample collection for clinical labs. Sherry, welcome to LSMR. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. I love your podcast. Uh, thank you so much. And shout out to Lamar Shar for getting us connected. He's responsible for about half my guests in the last six months. <laughs> Lamar is awesome, and we are really lucky to have him on the team. Yeah. All right, so let's talk about driving improvement in sample collection in the workflow and where that goes from here. Give us the backstory on Rhinostics and how it came about. Sure. So Rhinostics, like a lot of companies, were born during the pandemic. Um, and so the scientific founders were at Harvard um, Medical School and the Wies Institute. And what they quickly realized at the universities, which were hit really hard, is that the only way they were going to be able to keep their population safe was to do a lot of testing and, um, and regular testing. And um, what COVID showed everyone is that these upfront bottlenecks in how samples enter workflows are more than a nuisance. They were actually breaking the system. They were increasing the cost, the time to get samples through. Samples were piling up um, and turnaround times were really badly affected as well as the costs were pretty high. So what Harvard did is they invented um, a novel um, a novel swab, so something really simple. So in um, what it is is a polypropylene device, um, a quick swab. It's very comfortable. It's very soft. And it has an active end that interacts with a decapping robot. And by that simple idea and concept, um, they were able to basically um, take out a large amount of costs and a large am amount of bottlenecks from COVID testing. Yeah, so I guess talk a little bit more about those bottlenecks on the front end. I mean, the original swap, long stick with cotton on the end, right? Tickle your brain. <laughs> then the person at the collection station has to put that into some kind of preservative, I presume, and cap it. That's right. Right, And then it got shipped off and someone else had to uncap it, probably pull out something, move it along. <laughs> Is that right? I mean, it's That's been a right. while, but it's a very it's a very clunky process. I'm sure everyone watching this podcast had a COVID test. Initially, they were kind of the ones that went all the way up into your brain, basically a nasal pharyngeal, um, and that evolved to a nasal swab, which is just kind of anterior nares, which is the front of the nose. Um, but yeah, so those swabs haven't changed in forty or fifty years, um, and they're really that market is dominated by two family businesses that are great companies, um, but not a lot of innovation going on there or changes to the workflow. When these swaps come into a work into the workflow, basically they get racked up. If you want to do 96 of those, it will take one person 18 to 20 minutes and they're handicapping each one inside of sessioning it in, removing the swap, and then moving the sample into a micro titer plate. The micro titer plate, once it gets into that format, it whips through the rest of the workflow because all of that's already married to liquid handling. But this part of the workflow is still very manual. So what we're doing is creating microplates out of collection devices and swaps. So instead of each one being done, they come in a rack and those are decapped by a robot. And that robot can decap all 96 in about 30 seconds. 
So you already see the time savings. You already see that someone's not doing something that's going to give them carpal tunnel, and that's pretty miserable to do. And there's a lot of errors you can imagine when you're manually moving things over. A robot comes in, does it, and then basically it goes right into a robotic work system and gets married to the assay that's already um, been automated. And what we're trying to do is just take that front end and make it as efficient as the back end already is. Yeah, no, I like it. So talk about um, what that means for the person being tested, turnaround time probably, other stuff, the person collecting it and the people in the lab. So it's really interesting. So our swabs are very comfortable and uh, we know this because they've been used a lot. They were used to test 2.5 million tests on faculty, staff and students at Harvard University and another couple hundred thousand at University of Washington. And for a short time, they actually had to go back to flock swabs because they ran out of our swabs. And they all reported back, the students, how much they missed our swabs and that the flocking actually irritated them and they wanted our swabs back. And they were really happy when they came back. Um, so it is a more comfortable collection um, in the nose, especially on the elderly. They actually get very Ill irritated with, um, with the flocking and things like that as well. Um, so when you think about how it, the turnaround times, you can basically get a turnaround time within, you know, a, a two to three hour window from start to finish when they get in the lab. There were many times I dropped off samples at Harvard and um, at five o'clock and I actually got a call back by eight o'clock at night with my results um, because they would just run them as they came in. Harvard at the heyday was running 15,000 samples a day and that was with 14 people. And if you compare that to one of the other large institutes in the area that we know are testing about the same number of swabs, they had about 140 people doing the same thing. And we had, and Harvard had better turnaround times, um, you know, definitely same day, but within a couple hours. Yeah. So use, end user experience for one thing, besides the turnaround time, just outright comfort and willingness to be tested, especially in the scenario you're describing where several times a week these students and faculty are being tested. They were tested three times a week, kind of in the middle of the process. So, um, yeah. yeah, so we know they work well. You know, when we look at the Harvard data, they had lower false positive and false negative rates in their testing programs. And we there was a really positive response from the whole student body and staff. So they're tried and true and, you know, and, and um, and we know that it had a positive impact on the universities during COVID. What was um, the um, location? I'm thinking about students have to go into somewhere to get swabbed. I mean, these aren't self-tests, I presume. Yeah, and this was during COVID. But what they did is they just set up self-tests. They were self-tests. Oh, okay. Yeah, and so um, they had an EUA, and they would just put them around the campus. And they had a system where they just barcoded it into their phone. And then they could drop it off on campus anywhere. And so it was a really nice system that um, Harvard had put around it. But we, you know, our swabs right now, you know, COVID is still around. It's dropped off, of course, but there's still medical testing, a lot less self-testing. But they work great, whether it's someone testing themselves or it's a physician collecting it. As I mentioned, like the vulnerable populations in particular are still at risk. So when you think about assisted living facilities and things like that, um, you know, we're really starting to hear an interest there because 
they are more comfortable to collect for those populations that do or have become kind of resistant to flock swabs. Yeah, and apparently we're in the middle of a little bit of a wave right now, right? I mean, every every week I'm talking to somebody. I've been knocking on wood <laughs> on not tested positive yet, but um, every week recently someone's shown up with that's getting COVID again. I'm also thinking, um, so I want to go back to the phone thing. So you get a self-test, there's a barcode or something on it. You essentially scan that with your phone so they know whose it is, or they don't even need to know. And somehow the result gets sent back to your phone directly. Well, and that was during COVID. That's really what they were doing at the universities. Um, is they had developed a system. And our, our products come with barcodes on the side, or we can enable you with a barcode that will give you a QR code on the bottom as well as a barcode on the side. And it's that number that, that the students could enter, or if it's a medical facility, they can just scan and enter into their systems. And then when it gets into the lab, they can actually scan it with a barcode scanner that can see all 96 at once. So you're not hand accessioning them. And then the same information is on the bottom and the side, and then every time you go through a step in the lab, you can, so let's say after you finish your, you know, after you finish um, accessioning, you can scan it. And then after you finish um, heat and activating it and eluding, you can scan it. And then before you do your assay, you can scan it. So you get these multiple checking points where you know exactly where that sample is on the plate and, and you confirm that. And then it can also be used to track it by the laboratories, by the limb systems. And then also then, of course, correlate the final results back. Yeah, nice. Let's talk a little bit about um, what I think is also the interesting part of this story is starting a company virtually at the height of the pandemic. Yeah, I have to say it was a unique experience. Um, my background is 25 years in life science tools and diagnostics, and I've worked at some fairly large companies, and I've, you know, for the last decade plus been doing earlier stage companies as well. And um, but this is my first time actually founding and starting one, and it happened to be in the middle of a pandemic. So I met the, um, the so there were four of us that basically started the company and were the founding board members, the two scientific founders and our chairman, who has a lot of business experience. And we never met in person for the first nine months. So we started, I started working and consulting with them, and then we incorporated the company, and we did a friends and family round, and then we raised, um, you know, some funding and all of that was virtual. I also, we, we got initial funding from COVID Apollo, which was the, a group that was making investments to help with COVID um, platform companies. And that was like Red Mile, Samsara, RA Capital and Percepta and Bain kind of came in to make this fund to do these things. We never met in person. We had all of our calls virtually and 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 so it was all done telephonically. I mean, in Zoom and you know, and uh, everything, but, um, and I basically started the company out of, you know, my guest bedroom because we didn't need space um, um, for the first year. We now have a facility, which you can see behind me, and we have, you know, all of the normal things that you would have as a company grows and expands. We're about to have our three-year anniversary, so. How did you start up manufacturing? In, in, obviously, somebody's got to show up somewhere to make that happen. Yeah, so again, a lot of it virtual um, because they wouldn't let you in their facilities for a long time. So we work with a great set of contract manufacturers. Um, our products are injection molded. So we create 
the devices, and we worked with a great group, Influx, that did all of our molds, which is part of Procter & Gamble. And um, and then we would test product. They'd send it to us, and we would test it, and then we would work to transfer it into manufacturing. So it was all done by sending product and doing it all on calls. I mean, now, of course, we go visit them, and we can sort of, you know, touch and feel it more. Now I'm thinking 22nd century, maybe. And maybe I'm certainly, this is real now, I guess. Is it possible, you know, you design a swab, there's a file, it goes somewhere because injection molding, I mean, somebody has to make a mold, but maybe that can all be done fairly hands-free. And then the swabs also, once the design is there, and the, is a robot just cranking these things out? So initially, um, we have injection molds, and I don't know how much you know about that process, but, you know, they're these, you know, they have different cavitations, so we have a certain number of that you can make it at the time. And um, we have everything from a two-cavity mold all the way up to a 32-cavity mold that they can make at once, and they just turn it and turn it. So that is pretty automated, and they kind of pop out with a mm -hmm. robot. But then someone has to still manually kind of put those together. But we okay. do have a project with Nolato, um, and there is a line that we've built that will be all virtual. So it will make the, it'll make the tubes, it'll make the caps, and then they get, there's an automation system that screws them in. And then that whole process of making them, capping them, they will have it. It'll be almost hands-free, except for the packaging part. So they and many others are really at the cutting edge of really trying to take labor out because labor, I think this is a good segue. Anyway, labor is a big issue everywhere, including manufacturing right now. Yeah. I mean, it's um, we will talk about that. I'm just fascinated by the number of things that can be done remotely now. Like When I went to school, there's no such thing as having a remote lab where people design experiments and it go, send it off to a bunch of robots who run thousands and thousands of iterations and now manufacturing. But when we talk about the labor, it's not just saving money, it's the shortage of labor, right? And, you know, find getting things done that need to be done. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that's been the flip side of starting a company in the pandemic is just the supply chains and labor and all those issues. And then when you actually talk about the problem that we're solving, and the real pain point that exists in laboratories today, not only are there the cost structures and things like that, it's just finding med techs and people to, to work in the lab. And a lot of them got burned out. There was a small number before the pandemic, but there a lot of them got burned out. And you know, med tech now is making anywhere from 125000 to 150000 with $20,000 signing bonuses. And, you know, retention turnover in the labs is something in the 25 to 30, 35%. So it's a real issue um, facing most of the laboratories right now. Yeah. And so talk a little bit more about how this kind of workflow ideally reduces that turnover because, I mean, describe for people who don't know, including me, exactly aside from just the stress of having run thousands and thousands of samples and in an environment that I mean, we're talking about tubes coming by with COVID in them. Talk about their situation, how they think about it, the causes of the turnover. Yeah, so if you think about it, if you're in a lab that's doing a lot of swabs, whether it's COVID, if it's for um, vaginal collection for STIs, you know, whatever it is, there's a lot of swabs coming in. Your Part of your job may be to decap 
thousands of these by hand, which is not a really fun job. And it's actually a painful job. You know, um, yeah. repetitive motion is a serious and real thing. It's also kind of a boring job, right? Because and so if we can remove that step and take out that repetitive process and use a robot, not only does that person save 20 minutes, you know, by using a robot to do it instead of by doing hand for 96 throughputs improve, but watching a robot do something um, is obviously, uh, it's, it's a more pleasant experience than having to do that work yourself. Um, we also have new blood collection devices where we're also focused on taking out the whole punching that's out there for dried blood cards because that's another area that's still very labor intensive and um, not the greatest process for the lab personnel. And so if you think about it, you've gone to all this trouble to find great people and you've got them in place and you've got them trained, you really want them to stay. And so it's a much better way to think about using your team you know, in, in ways that are more fulfilling for them and to also potentially get you better results because the robot's kind of doing the same thing over and over again um, instead of the person having to do the repetitive task. Right. I can imagine. I mean, it doesn't take much imagination to realize that when you go to school to be a med tech, you weren't really thinking about right. taking the caps off of tubes. Well, and then if you, COVID was a special circumstance, but when you sort of think about the rise and fall of a day, let's not even talk about weeks, but when you're COVID, like you might be getting 1,000 samples in, you might be getting 10,000 samples in a day, and there was a lot of variability. If you think about the day too, you need a lot of people to come in when the samples are coming in, and then less once you get to the part that is robotic in your workflow. So if you can smooth those by having a team that you don't have to take up and down with labor, but you can smooth that variability. So like if, if your standard is yeah. a thousand, but you could flex up to 8,000 a day if you needed to by with the robotics, um, that also will help you manage your costs and people better because you'll be able to, to kind of manage the workflow. And then you don't have to have such an intense number of people in the beginning of the day if you can do that robotically. So I think it's also about how do you manage your teams better and your fixed costs better. Yeah. So um, COVID testing, last time we talked, tailing off, hopefully. <laughs> well, we're seeing a spike right now. Hopefully, I wish we were the last one. Um, but where's the market heading in terms of sample collection and workflows? What other applications do you see coming to be more? Yeah. I, I mean, I think the way a lot of people are thinking about COVID, right, is it's now part of our milieu of respiratory diseases. And they'll have a season like they always do. And we'll be doing multi-analyte respiratory testing like we would if we did for flu. It might be a little bit more intense because we have more things circulating now. So we definitely see people doing multi-analyte testing with um, respiratory testing with our swabs. You can do that with a, just an anterior nares and a nasal um, collection. But we're also, as I mentioned, focused on um, other areas like blood and other materials. So if you think about um, STIs right now, not a pandemic, but an epidemic on a global basis. Um, I think for people that are sexually active, the statistic is one in four people have an active STI at any time, which is a, a large number. And so um, by testing, there's a lot of benefits and there's a lot of um, things that can issues with health and reproduction and things like that if you don't and obviously spreading it and things like that. So what we're trying to do is really enable that 
with, we're working with partners for home collection for that. So you're seeing more and more kits in the pharmacy shelves and in kiosks and things like that to make it more discreet and available. So our swaps work great as a vaginal swab. The smaller size actually lets them get into some of these areas like a kiosk or something small. Our blood collection device is just a little capillary. You do a finger prick, you collect the blood that you can do an HIV, HCV, HPV, syphilis test on. And you, combined with that, with a vaginal swab, then um, you can get the majority of different tests. And then for people that aren't up to a swab for male collection, we also have a urine collection too. It's pretty simple, but it works with the same robotics that we offer. So they all kind of fit together in a smaller size. And currently people are shipping really large cups of urine around when they're only using 200 microliters. So it's, you know, it's just people aren't thinking through the workflows. Like they just keep doing the same things they've done. Like people do viral transport media, even though we're not feeding viruses if it's not going to culture. So we're just going to endpoint testing. We can remove these things. But, you know, what we're trying to do is not just do things the way your grandmother did them or grandfather did them, but like let's actually think about what our end goals are and how do we improve them, starting with, with the best sample that's possible and a really efficient workflow. Yes. So what are, um, in terms of STI testing, like, what do you see? I'm thinking about just the education component that people, what's going on to let people know that this is actually a, a possibility for them? Yeah, I, I think that's a good point. I, I, you know, I know that there are campaigns that the CDC and others have, but there probably isn't enough education being done. Um, I think right now you can see on a lot of, you know, pharmacy and big store websites, those testing are available. But I think by more of these getting on the shelves and more grassroots letting people know they're available, um, I, you know, I think, I think you're going to start... I, we know of many, many, many retail areas and groups that are looking to do this in the near term. So we think it's going to actually become a much bigger presence um, over the next couple months. And hopefully that will drive some adoption of home testing. You buy the kit discreetly from the pharmacy when you're there, take it home, do the test, and you put it in the mail and send it in. So no one has to know but you. And... Um, and then they do a telehealth if you need it. So if it's positive, they can help you with the prescription and making sure you're getting the correct care and all those things that are really important. Um, but I think that, um, but I agree with you. There's still more that needs to be done to let people know that, that these are available. Yeah, I hadn't even thought about sort of the retail aspect of it. Yeah. There is self-checkout. I'm thinking about the whole just being discreet from end to end here. But at the same time, having something in the store that say, hey, you could do this if this is a concern, right? So, Well, um, and I'm always on the lookout now because I'm obviously interested. But I, I, when you look in a pharmacy now, they usually are stocked right by the pharmacy shelves, the self-kits that they have. They have covid of course, home kits too. And they have, um, some of them have a few other type of kits that are not STIs like food testing and things like that. So it's becoming a bigger, you know, a bigger part of what pharmacies want to offer as well. That leads, I can probably only one more question, but I can't promise you. <laughs> Just about the general trend toward home testing for so many things. Do you see that as um, just 
continuous growth opportunity? I think it's just the way the world is evolving. Um, I, you know, that genie is out of the bottle. And what we learned is that people can do home tests accurately and that people like that. Um, and it's interesting. I've been talking to the um, group purchasing organizations for hospitals lately. So we're trying to get into all those um, contracts. And they're also really trying to figure out what is their play in this market space, especially for things that will go home, right? That are like, let's say the old days when you had Accutane and you had to check your lipids at when you're on it, you know, and you have to check it every other week or every month or something like that. You could send a little, our little Veristick blood collection device, do a finger prick, send them home with 10 of them, and then they can just do it and send it back. They don't have to drag their teenager back to the clinic to stay and away for a blood draw and keep them out of school, you know, so you're going to get much more compliance and things like that. So it's interesting because everyone is not just, um, home health and kit providers that are interested, like the whole hospital health system is trying to figure out how can we use this, um, these tools to actually have better health care um, for people that's more convenient, but still just as accurate and, you know, and, 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 um, and maybe get more compliance. Right. And better utilization of on-site resources, right? So you, you don't have people have to check in somebody who's coming in for a five-minute blood draw. Exactly. It's, it's, it can be, we all know it could be really inconvenient. Um, so yeah, it's exciting. I think that, um, those, you have to also look at the blessings that came out of COVID. And I do think that people rethinking things, um, how things are done, how samples are collected, lab processes, how home health can be, you know, accessed is really important. Nice. Sherry Walker, this has been a treat to talk to you today. Thank you so much for sharing that story about, you know, starting up during COVID and, you know, a novel product. Well, it's been really a pleasure. Thank you for having us. My pleasure. Hey, if you're still listening, that tells me you enjoyed the podcast. But don't tell me, tell your friends, and I'll be back soon with another episode. Okay, you can tell me too. 